Well, it's great. If you're watching on the live stream, it's excellent that so many people can be with us. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been so encouraged by seeing everyone uh, watching. Now, you can hopefully see us, but we can't necessarily see you. So if you want to comment on the Facebook live stream, it'd be great. That way we know that you're here and uh, that you're a part of things. Um, if you've got issues with volume, can I suggest that you turn both the volume of your computer up and also that of Facebook uh, later on this morning, and I'll say more about it uh, later, we're having a morning tea at 11am. Uh, a morning tea via Zoom. Uh, hopefully we'll receive the link to that via our email, or if you can't find that email, haven't received it, it's on our Facebook page. I want to do a couple of things this morning as we look at the Word of God. Gav has read to us two really important sections from Jesus' Sermon of the, on the Mount. And what we see in the Sermon of the Mount is Jesus helping those who would call him Lord, those who follow him as king. Jesus is helping people like us work out what it is to live in a world, in a confusing world, in a world that is, in fact, turned upside down. And so Jesus' words in the Sermon of the Mount couldn't be more relevant for us as Christian people at any time. They couldn't be more relevant for our world, especially at this time. I saw an interview in the online journal of the Harvard Business Review with a man called David Kessler. Now, David Kessler is one of the world's experts on grief. And because there's not a lot of business happening at the moment... The Harvard Business Review is running an article on grief. And this world expert on grief uh, uh, entitles uh, the article with this. That discomfort that you're feeling is grief. I think the reality is that everyone is feeling uh, a degree of discomfort. For some of us, it's quite severe. Uh, But all of us are feeling discomfort. David Kessler says that this kind of discomfort that we're feeling is a type of grief. And I quote from the article, he says, yes, we're feeling a number of different griefs. We feel the world has changed, and it has. We know this is temporary, but it doesn't feel that way, and we realise that things will be different. The loss of normalcy, the, the fear of economic toll, the loss of connection, This is hitting us and we're grieving collectively. We're not used to this kind of collective grief in the air. The reality is that we all have lost. We all have lost a degree of freedom. Some of what we've lost is really hurting us. But for many of us, I think, behind this grief, this communal grief that David Kessler speaks about is our loss of invincibility. We fear the reality of our frailty and our weakness. And one of the things that the coronavirus has caused throughout our whole community is that in many ways we've been forced off this hamster wheel 
This hamster wheel that we run our lives around, the hamster wheel of more, harder, longer. And we've actually been moved to and forced to think, to pause and to stop hectic lives, busy schedules. Things have stopped. And some of us don't like that. Some of us keep so busy because we don't like to face bigger questions around our life and our meaning. Jesus' words to us today are, blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm going to try and unpack what that means for us. But first we need to understand the context coming up to the Sermon of the Mount. We need to understand what Jesus has been up to in the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Gospel there, if you have a Bible there, open up to the Gospel of Matthew because I want to give us a flyover very briefly of the first four chapters before we get to chapter 5. And as we, I hope this will be helpful as we pick things up in our sermon series after Easter um, in the Gospel of Matthew. In the first uh, four chapters before the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew records the life of Jesus, but he doesn't record simply the facts of Jesus' life. Now, Matthew is very interested in helping us understand what those facts mean, what those facts mean in a particular way. And he, he says the particular meaning around those facts. He, let us, he lets us know about that meaning there in the very first line of the gospel. We read that Jesus is the Christ. We read that he's the king. That's what the word Christ means. We read that he is the king. This is what Matthew, this writer of the gospel, wants us to understand as we read throughout this gospel that Jesus is king, that he is, in fact, the son of David there in the first verse of the gospel. He's the son of Israel's greatest king, great David's greatest son. Jesus, Matthew thinks, is king. And what we see in chapter 1 is that the reality that Jesus is king is something that God has been working out before even Jesus was born. In Jesus' family line, we see how His birth brings about this line of continuity, about the expectation of this king that would come. We read in chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus is born. And he's born not in his hometown of Nazareth, but importantly, he's born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the city of kings. He's born as a baby, and yet we read at the end there of chapter 1 that he is worshipped by the wise men as king. The other king at the time, Herod, is upset by this rival. And so we read there in chapter 2 that he searches to kill Jesus. So Joseph takes Jesus with Mary down to Egypt until Herod's death. And what's interesting is Matthew's comment. His comment on this young child's life being spared is not what we might expect. He doesn't say that... Jesus' life is saved. Now, Matthew wants those who read this gospel to know more than just the mere fact that his life was spared. Matthew wants us to know what that means. And he tells us 
what he thinks it means there in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. He says, as Jesus comes out of Egypt, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament there, out of Egypt I call my son, is from Hosea, the prophet. And Hosea recounts uh, in his prophecy, in his book, how God so graciously and faithfully has rescued his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt, in what we call the Exodus. But here in Matthew, as Jesus comes out of Egypt, we see that what is happening, what had happened to Israel, Matthew sees is in fact happening to Jesus. Matthew sees in Jesus' life that a new rescue has begun. Has begun. A new exodus. A new end to exile all in the life of Jesus. And we see this continually played out in the Gospel of Matthew, especially as the Gospel goes on in chapters 3 and 4. This rescue in the life of Jesus. The history of Israel played out in the life of Jesus. The great saving events from the history of Israel are being fulfilled, Matthew thinks, are being echoed and played out in Jesus' life. Because from Egypt in history... Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea to the wandering in the desert for 40 years where Moses ascended up to Mount Sinai to give them the law to teach them how they were to live as God's rescued and redeemed people. And what do we see in the life of Jesus? Well, we see that echo of Israel's history. Matthew crafts his gospel to pick up on these major points of how God has been saving his people in the Old Testament to reflect them in the life of Jesus. Just like Israel, Jesus goes from Egypt, there in chapter 2, through waters, not waters of the Red Sea, but through the waters of his own baptism in chapter 3. And just like Israel was in the desert wandering for 40 years, Jesus is now, by chapter 4, in the desert being tempted by Satan for 40 days. And just as Moses went up the mountain to give the people the law to teach them how they are to live as rescued and redeemed people, look how the start of chapter 5 begins. Chapter 5, verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. See how Matthew is crafting his gospel? He's saying that Jesus is king. He's saying that Jesus is bringing about a rescue, a redemption, not from Egypt and Pharaoh, but from evil and Satan and death itself. And here in chapter 5, we hear from Jesus about what this new state of affairs is to be like. When a new CEO, CEO comes in or a new government comes in, often they, uh, they, they scrap whatever, whoever was before them and they put out a new vision, a new agenda with priorities and strategies, ways to make things better, to move from good to great. Well, here's 
what Jesus is doing. Matthew is helping us see that Jesus is the one who has come to power. And as he comes to power, his power is expressed through a new set of priorities, a new set of powers, a new set of strategies, and it's called his kingdom. And this kingdom isn't merely about improving the world, making it slightly better. In fact, this kingdom is about turning the world upside down. And that's what we see in this sermon from Jesus, from chapters 5 to 7. We see Jesus turning the order of our world upside down. We have in verses 3 to 13 in the Beati- what we, uh, is most commonly called the Beatitudes. And they're called the Beatitudes because Jesus here is offering what the blessed life looks like. The word Beatitude just means the blessed one or blessing. And Jesus there in verses 3 to 13, in around 9 of these blessings lists off what the good life in his kingdom looks like. And I'm just going to pick up on one for us this morning. Because what we see in the Beatitudes and what we see indeed in in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is turning the order of our world upside down because it reflects his life. He is the, the story of the life of Jesus is the story of things being turned upside down. He's the one who came from heaven to earth. And he came as king, but he came as king to die. And he came as the perfect sinless one, but he came to die for those who are imperfect, those who sin, all of humanity. You see, This upside-down nature of the Sermon of the Mount really is just a reflection of Jesus' life. And we see it really clearly there in verse 3, where Jesus starts his famous sermon with this first beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What I want to do is just pause for a moment, just to think about that one beatitude, That one word from Jesus. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, in a lot of ways, to be poor in spirit is similar just to being poor. But it's it's important for us to realise that this first beatitude is crucial. It's crucial for us to understand because... If you're a Christian person, you cannot go anywhere in the Christian life unless you understand this one beatitude. And secondly, if you're not a Christian, this is the best way to understand what Christianity is all about. Because Jesus says the person whose life is blessed, the person who you want to be like, is the one who is poor in spirit. You can see that Jesus is turning things upside down because he's departing from the normal way of thinking in our culture. Because in our culture, really before this virus hit, our culture is one of self-help. It's a one of doing it 
yourself. It's, well, it's the very opposite of being helpless. But in the last three or four weeks, we've moved. We've moved from a culture that in many ways is often in control. And we've moved to this very alien feeling of being helpless. And we don't like it. But here Jesus is reminding the Christian person that those who are poor in spirit are in fact blessed. How can that be? Well, a poor person, a poor person is someone who in many ways is helpless. A poor person often says, I don't have what it takes. I can't fix my own problems. I can't help myself. I don't have the power to change. I don't have what it takes to change. That's what a poor person often says. And so I think Jesus is picking up on that idea. I think Jesus is picking up on that idea, but not merely economically poor, but for those of us who are so, well, so enraptured with being in control, with having everything sorted out. Jesus is speaking to those kinds of people and he's saying, that's not the blessed life, being in control. No, the blessed life is found in being poor in spirit. This is where Jesus starts. This is where Jesus starts discipleship. This is where Jesus, I think, offers the entry into what Christianity Christianity is all about. You see, often we think of God or we come to God because we've got a problem. We're moving through a bad patch and we want his help. We want to clean up our life. We want to get over something. And we figure that God can help us with that. But Jesus isn't offering that. Jesus isn't offering that from God. He's not offering just a band-aid solution. He's not offering an alternative to self-help. Jesus is saying you cannot come to the God of the universe until you have a poverty of spirit. Until you know that you can't clean your life up. Until you know that your problems are beyond you. Until you realise that you are indeed empty spiritually. That you are poor in spirit. And that the Lord Jesus is the one who comes to fill us, to heal us, to rescue us, to save us. See, Jesus wants people to come to him, but he doesn't want people to come to him just to fix up their lives slightly just to get them through a rough patch, perhaps like the one that we're going through now. Jesus invites all people to come to him, but he invites them to come knowing that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they are poor in spirit, that their problems are so beyond them that they need God. And they need more than just his help to get them through something that's hard. They need his salvation. They need for him to come into not just one area of their lives, but into their whole life to rescue them. See, Jesus invites all those who would call him Lord, who would follow him as King. Jesus invites us 
up this mountain to hear his words, to hear his words in this Sermon of the Mount, to hear words that are a trustworthy foundation as the sermon ends, that they are a rock in a storm. But he invites us up such that we might be humbled, that we might come to him knowing that we don't have anything for him, but that he has everything for us. You see, Jesus finds us in a desert, in a poverty of spirit, and he calls us to hear his word. And then he invites us back down the mountain with him to a world of disease, to a world of sickness and death. And so we, as a society, are grieving. We're grieving the loss of so many things, but we, as Christian people, are not caught off guard because here in God's word, again, we have the resources for what it is to live through a time like this. Mourning and poorness of spirit not foreign to us. We as Christian people actually see the blessing of being poor in spirit. We rejoice in that because we begin to hold ourselves less because we realise how firm his hold of us is. You see, we come to Jesus because he is our king. We don't know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds it. And we know that he is good. And we know that as hard as it is to lose so many good things, one thing we do not regret losing is our pride and that instinct that we all have to have everything in control, to have everything the way we want it to be, to think of ourselves as spiritually rich. We do not mourn that loss. We celebrate the way that God provides an environment for us to lose the things that would stop us from coming to him. And so Jesus says to us, to us who mourn, to us who are poor in spirit, know that we have nothing in and of ourselves for God, but that Jesus has come to us to rescue us. Jesus says to us, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Amen. Well, friends, the reality of what it is to live in a world like ours, in a world that has changed in many ways, is the privilege of a Christian. And I'm going to ask a Christian who's a member of our church, Julianne, to come and join us just to hear how 